Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning into the Becker's Healthcare Podcast Series for today's podcast, Beyond Checking the Heatest Box, Pharmacist-Led Patient-Centered Care Helps Patients Live Healthier, Longer Lives. I'm Brian Zimmerman, AVP, Client Content and Strategy with Becker's Hospital Review. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Richard Resnick, CEO of Curator. With over 20 years of experience delivering results for venture capital-backed SaaS companies, Richard leads Curator as CEO. Before joining Curator, Richard served as CEO of GQ Life Sciences, which he led to a successful acquisition by Appian in 2016. As a respected healthcare industry thought leader, Richard speaks publicly on trends in technology. Be sure to check out his TED Talk, Welcome to the Genomic Revolution. Richard holds an MBA from the MIT Sloan School of Management, an MS in Computer Science from Worcester Polytechnic Institute, and a BS in Computer Science from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Richard, thanks so much for being here today. Hey, it's great to be here, Brian. Wow, I sound like a pretty impressive guy, but uh, my wife would have laughed at that introduction, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, uh, yeah, my, my wife is also not impressed by my resume, and it's a lot lighter than yours. So yeah. totally, uh, right. totally can relate. Um, <laughs> but, you know, just to get the ball rolling here, uh, can you maybe talk about the challenges associated with patient discharges and transition of care? I, I know that's something we really want to focus on in our conversation. So can you talk about why this is such a, a pain point for providers? Um, yeah, and every provider uh, would have felt this over and over in their career delivering healthcare. Um, you know, the primary issue is not knowing that your patient's been hospitalized, right? Because um, you don't have the information or you don't have it in, in a real-time fashion. That's number one. If you want to intervene uh, during a transition, um, you're doing it because you care about uh, the patient outcome. It's not really uh, a, a matter of a quality measure, although there are quality measures that drive this behavior. You're doing this because 53% of discharges, uh, patients are sent home with, with uh, at least one medication error. And if you look across all of the 30-day readmissions, the full third of them are because of them, because of medication errors. So, for providers that um, have been given the grace of time or incentive to really focus on this, first problem, the challenge they have is knowing that their patient has been discharged. Um, and the second is having the time because most providers are doing their 12 or 15 minute visits and this kind of work is interruptive work, right? It's not scheduled. Um, it's a discharge notification that needs to be addressed. Uh, the fact is, you know, there are some HEDIS and STARS measures around doing post-discharge medication reconciliation, for instance. It's one of the most dangerous things um, a patient faces is a medicine cabinet at home and the 50 medication changes that have happened over the course of their admission and knowing what to do and being instructed what to do in a state of some confusion uh, and, and fear on the way home, right? Um, and so having the time to slow down and be with the patient and doing it in a couple of days after a discharge, otherwise the impact of the, the readmission avoidance doesn't happen. That's something that you've got to invest in. And then even if you've got that time, um, there are patients that are healing at home and they're potentially aggravated with multiple in-person calls, uh, you know, face-to-face uh, uh, -face visits, home care. I got to go to my primary care now and social determinants of health drive, all that. But most importantly, the primary care doc is going to be a great generalist for that patient, but 
medications are not general. They come from specialties and they're advancing all the time. And there's lots of medication regimens that we see where like, there's no way uh, anybody but a clinical pharmacist could make sense of where the, the inherent danger is because of the multiple interactions as well as sort of those things and just take some training to do that well. Finally, you need to know all the medications that they have in their medicine cabinet, not just what's in your EMR, but the other stuff that comes from other providers. You need to know what happened in the hospital and you may or may not get that record. And so, you know, as a provider who is interested in this really important effort around making sure transitions are done safely and optimally, if you've got the time, if you know that your patient's been discharged in real time, if you've got all this information that's not available in your EMR, if you know how to reach the patient in a non-abrasive way and you actually can speak to and identify all of the risk without over-investing time or money or brain power, um, you can solve this problem. It's really easy. I, I appreciate that. And I want to I want to zero in on sort of some of the, the incentives you laid out there to to sort of solve this challenge where incentives are important, but they're not necessarily going to get you there. Um, thinking here specifically about the, the, the HEDIS guidelines and other measures, which, of course, um, as you pointed out, incentivize providers to improve the quality of patient transfers. But as tools, mm-hmm. some might argue that, that these measures fall short and don't necessarily help providers make substantial improvements. Can you talk about if you agree with that statement uh, and, and perhaps why? Oh yeah, I mean that's our that's our soapbox. We're glad for for the for the kind of the quality standards and the measures that follow because they do drive behavior. But I I'm constantly surprised that they drive behavior, right? Because if you think about some of the measures, for instance, that curator influences effectively, they're uh, the post discharge med rec measure MRP, and then the newer cousin that includes MRP, which is transitions of care TRC. And in each case, um, sort of a fast med rec and some, some put the data in the right places after kind of stuff that needs to be done. Uh, it's great that those exist. And they exist because, I don't know, a dozen years ago, some smart healthcare leaders got together and recognized this is a point of real danger for patients. And then they spent three years writing a measure and then another three rolling it out and then another three incentivizing it and then changing it. And so we're always kind of like doing the right thing based on the data from a long time ago. And it takes a really long time, understandably, to regulate uh, an industry which is 25, 30% of GDP. It, It should be done slowly, but that's an inherent conflict. It's a cognitive dissonance within that system. Worse, the incremental value of the next single post-discharge med rec, if you talk to a health plan exec or a health system exec, is zero. In fact, they're all zero. The very next one is worth zero to them forever until due to some weird stepwise function that is somewhat random, there's that final one that you complete, which takes you from one star to another, and suddenly it's monstrous. But just that one, that one post-discharge metric, and then you're back to the next one being worth zero. And it's the unpredictability, the, the disconnect between the action and the incentive that um, weakens its cause on the behavior of buyers. So that was a bunch of fancy words. What I mean to say is I know that if I just eat 1,200 calories a day, I'm going to 
lose weight. But um, what if I eat 1250 and also I ran and I think I burned 300 calories, I'm not sure. So what happens is because of the variability, the confusion in our minds about some single measure that's easy to optimize, but there's lots of ways to optimize it. You can optimize heat and stars by approaching medication-related measures or by approaching measures around, you know, home care. Like there's just so many places that you can go to fix these things. It's very difficult to choose which is the right one. And sometimes you believe that you've done enough investing over here and it's time to focus over here and you, you surge forward other measures in, in the second side. And it's just like you, you hadn't finished on side one and the clarity that decision makers are provided is pretty foggy. It's not really great. So that's the big issue with it is that the measure drives incentives and decision-making weekly. What happens to us every time is we use the, 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 the quality measure as a way to start a conversation and to begin doing work with a health plan or a health system or a, an IPA. Um, and then we show by virtue of the work that we do, the readmission reduction that, that is caused. And it's that that can be attached to real value. And that's how ROI is established, even though, even though we're still building value in this weird, unpredictable stepwise way in terms of improving the numbers on the quality measure. So that's frustrating. It's difficult. It makes buying suboptimal and inefficient. Um, I'd say there's probably two other things that come to mind. The third is this. You know, we're creating all this structure to incentivize on the up and downside our health plans and our providers to behave well. But this is the way they want to behave. And frankly, our point of view is that the HIEs, the folks who really like all of the data that is missing from each one of these records that could allow primary care providers to do this work, it's not there. And, you know, we sure wish that CMS would focus as much on incentivizing or penalizing EMRs and HIEs as they do payers and providers so that the providers and the payers can actually get this stuff done, right? They're sort of like not regulating the whole industry in a way that's balanced and puts an undue burden on the folks who are trying to just do the thing that we all think healthcare is, deliver care. Um, and the fourth thing is maybe sort of like the, you know, our dirty little secret or something we're a little grateful about is this, that providers still, they're pretty often tied to the fee-for-service worlds where, you know, you got RVUs that matter most. And, and, you know, as pharmacists, we can't submit codes for billing. We don't have that status to do it. Uh, and so as clinical pharmacists working generally off, off of telephones and video, you know, we have all the data to be able to solve these problems, but we can't submit the fee-for-service fees. And so that's pushed clinical pharmacists away generally because there's not an, there's, you know, it's tricky to generate the revenue that you'd need to support their salaries, but it's pushed us in a great direction that we're grateful for. It's sort of better to have it hard, right? Because by having it hard like that, we have no choice but to demonstrate ROI in value-based care and enhancing quality metrics and lowering readmissions. That's how we get paid. And so we're, gonna, we're necessarily ahead of the curve, being more innovative as, as we grow, as are other folks that are sort of a little bit outside of the, and not allowed into that fee-for-service world. In that regard, I'm really happy 
that value-based care and the, the kind of the quality measures that, uh, that accompany it are, um, they exist however imperfect they are. Yeah, I appreciate that. You, you, you dug deep there, but you, you've, you sort of formulated things in a way that's easy to understand. You know, these measures provide sort of a guidepost or no North Star, so to speak, on where you want to get to, but they don't provide a roadmap. You know, you're kind of, it, it, it's, it's left up to you to figure out how you're going to get there. And that can be um, a pretty, pretty murky bit of business. So I, I appreciate you laying that out for listeners. Before I get to another question, I want to I want to pause here, Richard, and see you've already laid out a, a lot of challenges here. But are there any that you haven't sort of laid out around medication management and why it's so difficult to maintain an updated medication list for patients? Is there anything we didn't touch on that you think is important to know before we move on? Oh, gosh. I guess let me try to make it somewhat personal. You know, I, I have a high blood pressure, I, I, and I, it's very well controlled, but I take a lot of medications to control it, yeah? And I'm not that old of a guy. I'm pretty healthy. I eat well. I, you know, I think brain still works pretty well, too. Um, I think I so. I think it's safe to say. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I, actually, this is just a recording. There's a robot called Richard Resnick, and, I, you know, you're doing a great job. Um I go to my primary care to a specialty care provider and they ask me what medications I take sometimes. And my primary care always does. And sometimes as good as I am, right, with my brain and as knowledgeable as I am with this problem, I myself have misconveyed the medication that I currently take. Now, imagine that you're a Medicare patient and you probably take as many or more meds that I do. I mean, we see some patients that are on 50, five, zero medications. That is psychotically dangerous, right? Um, and like, even if you're just on five, uh, but they come from a couple different prescribers, you're not communicating effectively with each one of your doctors about what you're taking. You may be picking up medications that your insurance company doesn't know about. It's not in your medical record through claims. Um, like there's just a bunch of ways to get all this stuff and everybody listening probably has either themselves or a loved one or a parent who they felt they had to manage their medications because they were being hospitalized or they were dealing with some other chronic care and nobody was watching this stuff and obvious mistakes were being made. This is happening because of a gap of information and coordination across the care team and an overwhelming sort of responsibility placed on patients who are sick to make sure that all this stuff is going on in a setting of like, there's not enough time for their doctors to slow down. So the things we try to do around that, it, you know, it's, it's one thing to reconcile a medication list. In fact, you can actually do that and submit for payment without ever talking to a patient. Mm, so that's good. Um, another extreme is what if you took the time to go through every piece of data that you knew through claims uh, from the, the PBM as well as from the cash pay data from pharmacies and the coupon data, right? That's available. That's data that you can obtain. As well as you slowed down and you had a nice, easy conversation, a motivational interviewing conversation with the patient. And that's one where you're talking about each medication and you're talking to them not just about do you take this, but also what do you think it does for you? Because if they believe things about it, 
that matters. The placebo effect matters. If they have a belief that this is a med- this is the medication that causes them a terrible side effect, whether true or not, that's something to know and something to deal with because it gets directly to adherence, right? Um, if they have difficulty accessing medication because of transportation or money, you're not going to find that out if you don't talk to them. Um, and so establishing connections as a care provider who really understands medications, that's really the way to do it. But Ryan, you can't do it quickly. You got to, you got to take the time to do it. What we find is that if you take the 30 minutes, the 45 minutes, um, it's just so much cheaper than the readmission. It's so much cheaper. And for patients in real trouble, like, I mean, we just reduced readmissions for CHF patients in a random control trial by almost 50, 50% at a four-star hospital. So it really works for medication-related disease, disease that's, high, that's really uh, controlled by medications that are dangerous inherently. It's unbelievable how much a 30-minute motivational interview and a follow-up with prescribers can change the game. It's that kind of stuff. Richard, I appreciate you sharing that and grounding it in, in the personal. I, I am among those who have a family member who uh, takes uh, quite quite a few medications and is also uh, just candidly not an easy patient. Um, <laughs> so I, 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 I and I think that sort of makes this even more challenging. Um, so the, the idea of having this information readily accessible and easier to find um, can, can really help out. I am I imagine there's a lot of folks out there with family members who are on a lot of medications, but also like, like my family member isn't uh, the easiest patient out there. So um, appreciate that, that context. And I guess I just want to ask what, what can providers do here? Uh, how can, how can they overcome these challenges and really improve patient care? I think you've alluded to it, but I just want to ask you sort of pointedly what, what can be done here? Yeah. I mean, there's sort of varying degrees of idealism. Um, I think it's the, the sort of the accessible end. Um, uh, some of the things that providers can do um, are, you know, like remember the thing that you know, which is that caring for patients, it's a team, it's a village, as they say, but like a team of, of healthcare providers and non-clinicians that have differing skills and foci and, you know, Get in, that's that's so important, right? Like, why we're getting this abundance of of interest now from independent physician associations, um, who some in some cases have uh, the benefit of a small clinical pharmacy team that they make available to their providers, large and small, and they're doing they're working in areas around triple weighted adherence, and providers kind of have the time and the bandwidth to keep up with why it's important to to be motivated by some of those measures, but they want to expand to do all this transitional care stuff and it's harder to do, it requires more data. In a setting like that, recognizing the value of having an expert really look at all of the medications that you may not even see for one of your patients and to just give you advice, which you get to decide whether or not to accept, but it's, it's you know evidence-based advice that's backed up like, why would you not want that if it's free <laughs> or even if it's not free? Like, really look into and understand how you get paid. That's another thing I would advise, right? Uh, you know, be more active in designing the quality measures themselves. Jump in, right, and start to play a role. Like, 
speak up about the things that you can't see. And then finally, you know, the thing that we did that was transformational for us as we um, metamorphosized from a pure technology and data company into a telepharmacy uh, clinic is we made a commitment to ourselves through our values that we were not going to engage in any business activity whatsoever that didn't benefit the patient with evidence. And so what would your practice look like if every decision that you made that was maybe neutral to patient outcomes, but sort of favorable to administrative outcomes were scrutinized? What will happen if you do that is, first of all, you'll, if you drink alcohol, you'll have a big stiff drink that night. And the second thing that you'll do is you'll come back the next day and you'll allow yourself to just scrutinize everything um, and to not allow yourself to accept the fee-for-service requirements, to sort of sign up for the risk because it makes the patients safer and they get to spend more of their time at home and in the real world where they belong. And in the end, it makes your lives more meaningful. It makes your lives more valuable. It makes your impact more important. Um, and uh, for us here, it's been like each day is a day of goosebumps, right? Because we're, we're literally sort of running curator as though we're, you know, we're, we are a venture back company as my, as my sort of background suggests, but we're running this as a, as a double bottom line company, right? I mean, we're thinking, we're counting the patients who are keeping out of the hospital and who, who we're keeping alive every day. Um, that's why we started this stuff, right? So let's get back to it. Richard, I so appreciate you taking the time. It's been a, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you today. I'd also like to thank Curator for sponsoring this episode. You can tune to more podcasts from Becker's Healthcare by visiting our podcast page.